Welcome to the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. My name is Mark, and I am the pastor of the Congregation of St. Thomas the Doubter, an independent ecumenical congregation for all people that embraces holy doubt, the importance of grace, and the power of solidarity in community. You can find out more about our congregation online at stthomascongregation.org. This podcast offers the scripture lessons and sermons from our Sunday evening services. In the future, it may also be a place for conversation and discussion on various issues of religion and faith. This is episode 18, and it's from the service for October 29th, 2023. The scripture lesson is Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 through 12, and the sermon is entitled, In the Land of Moab. We hope you enjoy the episode. Our scripture lesson for tonight comes from the 34th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, verses 1 through 12. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired, and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him, and the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land, and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there are a number of things that strike me about this passage from Deuteronomy. It is the story of Moses' death in the land of Moab at the end of the Exodus. Among the things that strike me are that I have actually been to the plains of Jericho. I have seen the valley coming down from Jordan, the one that goes up into modern-day Palestine and Israel, and the sense that you can sort of see the whole land. It's not quite accurate that you can see all the way to the Mediterranean, but the point is well taken, that God is showing him the land from this point of view, and Moses can see everything from the far north 
to the far south. And it is in those plains, a city of, of palm trees. Date palms are abound throughout that area as Jericho is built on an ancient oasis with three springs that bring up life and sustenance there along the river. But there are a couple of other details that strike me as I read this passage. One is Moses's age when he dies. He is 120, which is three times 40. And in fact, his life has been divided into these 40-year periods, the 40 years from his birth to fleeing Egypt, the 40 years that he spends in the wilderness in, in, uh, in, in the Sinai with his wife and family, and then the 40 years from the Exodus to the present moment. It makes for a nice round number. It's a good biblical number, 340s. It's a real sense of completeness to Moses's story. But it's interesting that Moses does not die of old age, even so. We are told that his sight is unimpaired, that he still is vital and vibrant, but that he dies there at the Lord's command. You could be forgiven for thinking that's not quite fair, that Moses has some more years left in him. He's still healthy and full of vigor, and yet at the Lord's command there he dies on the mountain. Another thing we notice in the story is it says that Moses was buried even though no one knows where he was buried, which has led to commentators for millennia to argue that it was God who buried Moses, and that's why nobody knows where he was buried, somewhere under the mountain in Moab. We also see that this story alone makes it challenging to argue that Moses is the author of all five books of the Torah, given that there are this section exists in which he's dead, although some have argued across the tradition that Moses was dictated these verses by God and had to write the story of his own death before dying. That also strikes me as a little bit unfair, and you would be forgiven for thinking likewise. But I think the thing that strikes me the most, I think the thing that strikes everyone as we look at this story, is that after all this time, right, after having been saved from, from death as an infant, raised in Pharaoh's palace, having achieved some level of status in Pharaoh's household, and then fleeing into the wilderness after having beaten to death an Egyptian who was beating on a slave, after having gone out into the wilderness, having an experience with God who sends him back to Egypt, even though he's settled there, he has a wife and family and a living, and God says, go back to Egypt, rescue my people. He goes back to Egypt, he contends with Pharaoh, they go through the, the ten plagues, they go through the Passover, they flee from the Egyptians, they part through the Red Sea. Moses receives 
the law at Sinai and fire and cloud comes down to find the people have made an idol. He has to smash the idol. The people complain. He continues. They are demanding food. He, he calls down manna and quails from heaven. He strikes the rock for water to yield. There is a rebellion led by Korach. He resists Korach's rebellion. He comes up with a system to administer justice in the Exodus. He helps the people in the construction of the tabernacle and of the revelation of the law. He sends people, spies into the Holy Land to scout it out, to determine what the odds are that they're facing. He guides the people for decades in the wilderness, and then he doesn't get to go in? That strikes me the least fair of all of these things. Uh, he's earned it. If there's anyone in the Exodus, he's earned it. In fact, he and Joshua are the only two, perhaps Moses' brother Aaron, but I don't remember if Aaron has died yet, who are the only two from that original generation who have made it to the end. They're the only ones who were in Egypt. Everyone else has since died and their children have been born. And so he is the last one of that generation other than Joshua who remembers Egypt and has suffered in Egypt. And now he doesn't get to go into the promised land. That doesn't feel right. That's certainly not how Hollywood would write this ending. Hollywood would write the ending. He leads the parade in. He marches in and there's all kinds of celebration as he does so but he doesn't get to go in. Now, this story has been an archetypal story for so many people. I think in our memory, the most powerful use that we might remember is MLK's use of it. In his very last speech, his last address, he says that he has been to the mountaintop and he has seen the promised land. And then oddly, eerily, chillingly, prophetically, he says, I may not make it there with you, but we will make it. Of course, he was murdered only a day later. It's one of those stories where there is a tragedy in which the person whose vision it was to go forward, who led the people, is not able to make it themselves. It can be heartbreaking. It can make us cry out and say, but that's not fair. And yet, in a very real way, we all are there in the land of Moab. All of us are part of a process that we may not see fulfilled. All of us are part of something greater than ourselves. Indeed, if we think that this journey of faith is for ourselves alone, rather than those who come after us, maybe those we don't even know, may never know, then we have missed the point of the calling of God. So many of God's prophets don't get to see the fruit of their proclamation. 
John the Baptist certainly did not. Jeremiah certainly did not. Micah, Hosea, none of them got to see the redemption that they proclaimed. None of them got to see that day of justice. And yet, they did not tire from proclaiming it, from seeking to help people to get there. It's a bittersweet notion. I mean, it's one certainly that professionally I had a lot of experience with because I got to work with people only for four years at a time and they would just up and leave at the end of it. And so you might never know if something you said at some point took root and helped somebody out. They might not even know until years later. And so if you're doing that kind of work only because you expect to see dividends on your schedule, it doesn't pay out. And I think that that's what this story has to tell us. It's not just that Moses doesn't get to go over into the promised land, but that if we are to follow in the prophetic path, if we are to seek to lead people toward salvation, toward the promised land, we have to get used to the idea that we may not get there and that it's not about us. It's not about whether we get in or not. It's about whether we have done that work that helps to lead the people toward the goal. There is a quote in the Talmud by Rabbi Tarfan, and Rabbi Tarfan says, um, among other things, he says, the day is short and the work is plentiful. And then he says, it is not your duty to finish work, but neither are you at liberty to neglect it. That is, all of us have a role to play in the work, whether we see it completed or not. All of us have a part to play in building the future for humanity, for God's people, whether or not we ever get to benefit from it. A similar quote I came across rather serendipitously, is by Rabindranath Tagore, who said, the one who plants trees knowing that he will never sit in their shade has at least started to understand the meaning of life. All too often, we think that the work that we do is meant for us alone. And so we get jealous, perhaps, if that's the right emotion, of those who come after us who benefit in ways that we haven't. People who might obtain some kind of loan forgiveness or a better life. You know, this is sort of the old, the old saw about, you know, well, when I was a kid, we had to walk back and forth to school 20 miles in the snow uphill both ways, right? Well, why would we wish that on anyone else, right? We, there's part of us that when we make those kinds of complaints, well, back in my day, it's because we're frustrated that we didn't get the benefit that the people today have. It's a benefit we would have wanted and we wouldn't have shunned in the name of some sort of pride of having to walk all the way to school. We would have gladly taken the short bus ride. 
And that metaphor speaks so much to how we tend to think that we are the focal point of history, that we are the ones for whom God's promises are made explicitly and alone, but they are not. We are part of that process. We are building toward something. And so it's not whether the work we do benefits us alone. It's about who comes after us. What kind of world will we live for those who come after us? We should hope on some level that it's not fair in retrospect, that when we look ahead, we say, wow, they had it so much easier. Good, that's what we're working for. We're working so that people don't suffer and that people don't go without. We're working for a world in which people don't have to suffer, struggle through the injustices and the inequities that people in our generation and those past had to go through. We should want that for the future and not begrudge them because we might not get to enjoy the fruits of that work. We're in the land of Moab. We've been given the vision of the promised land. We've been given, we can see it all from the Negev in the south to the land of Ephraim in the north, all the way to the Mediterranean from the Jordan River. We can see the whole vision and so we know what it is we're hoping our people to live into. We know that the work we do is so that those who come after us might dwell in that land, that those who come after us might live a life not defined by the suffering in Egypt or the trials of the wilderness, but of the milk and honey and the abundance of the Holy Land. We do these things in order to move the work along. It's not our task to finish the work, but neither are we free to neglect it. So much of who we are is defined by the vision of what will be. When Jesus began his preaching, he began with the words, repent and believe in the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. And that kingdom of God has become the framework through which we have seen what the world is and ought to be. And our work perhaps has lasted a good deal longer than that first generation of Christians thought it might those who expected that any moment now the kingdom of God would be attained and arrive. It's lasted millennia longer than people thought, but that doesn't make the work any less important. It doesn't make our commitment to that kingdom any less vital, and it doesn't remove from us our obligations to those who come after us. For we seek to create a world that reflects and models that kingdom of God so that when it does arrive, it will already have been unnecessary. It can be hard because we can be, well, we can be constrained to think it's not fair. We did all this work and we don't get to benefit from it. Instead, 
the people who come after us do. And that's fair, at least in a way, because we too benefit on the work that other people have done. We're not dropping dead from polio or other infections because other people did the hard work of working on those diseases. We have the benefits of telecommunications, transportation, of democratic systems. We can all, every one of us here can vote. And a hundred years ago, that would have been me, Bill, and Chris who could do that. We all benefit from the work that other people have done. We are all part of that process of seeking to live out God's purposes, God's love, God's grace, God's justice in the world, and making the world just a little bit more like the promised land, even if we will stay here in the land of Moab and never see it ourselves. Thank you for listening to this episode of the St. Thomas the Doubter podcast. For more information about the podcast and our congregation, visit www.stthomascongregation.org. Thanks again, and we hope you will join us again soon.